join with me in turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Last Sunday evening, we began our exposition of the book of Ephesians. And frankly, we didn't get very far, did we? <laughs> we really only covered the first of our three outline points, the writer, Paul, in the first part of Ephesians 1.1. You see it there. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I did speak from verse 2 when we talked about grace and peace. But what I did, of course, was start in verse 2 and go back to verse 1 to talk about the grace and peace that was evident in the Apostle Paul's life himself. And what I was endeavoring to show you last time was how this grace, this unmerited favor from God, and peace, this undeserved blessing or wholeness from God was given to the writer of the book of Hebrews, none other than Paul. And remember that from this particular epistle, we have a man, Paul, who is writing from where? Prison. He's writing from prison. And yet he's speaking about grace and peace. In other words, Paul's own life, as he contemplates what he wants to write to the Ephesians, is a testament to God's grace and peace. A testament to God's grace and peace. This is a prison epistle. And as Paul languishes in this prison, he doesn't write as though he is from prison because he writes as a blessed man. He writes as a grace-filled man. He's rejoicing in the grace and peace from God that he's received, and he's so very thankful for it. Paul was absolutely overwhelmed by the grace and the peace of God. Do you remember I told you from last time's study that Paul was that Christian-hating, that Christ-hating man, that Pharisee, who, if he could, would have put more and more Christians to death because he was deceived. He said in 1 Timothy that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. He was one of those men that we talked about this morning of the Jewish leaders who simply could not affirm in his own mind that Jesus was the Messiah. He couldn't fathom that. Even though he was a fastidious Jew, he kept the law. As to the law, he writes to the Philippians, he was found blameless. He was a zealous person. He was a, a per persecutor of the church. He was someone who very, very carefully and fastidiously kept all of the law. And even though he was looking for Messiah, he had no idea that it was Jesus of Nazareth until he was slapped down on that Damascus road. And he realized from the very lips of Christ himself when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard to kick against the goads? And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Saul, Paul, realized that Jesus is God. 
And he realized over the next three days, with his conscience becoming more and more sensitive to the guilt that was within him for all that he was doing, all that he had done to Christians. And he realized, as he says in Philippians, that everything that I had done, everything that I thought was in my credit column, I now realize is actually in my debit column. Everything that I thought I was doing to honor God, to love God, to serve God, I now realize all of those things were actually the things that were going to send me to hell because I was banking on all of those things as a way, as a means to be right with God. And he realized in a flash that those things were actually the impediment to his relationship with God. And God was merciful to him. And what God did was bestow upon him what he writes to the Ephesians here, grace and peace. He knew he didn't deserve the grace of God. He knew he never could merit the peace of God. He thought he was at peace with God. He thought he had a right relationship with God. It's like so many people who are living in our own world today who assume that through their own merit and through their own works that they are right with God. Oh, sure, they might do what you could call the fair exchange approach. Well, I know that there are things that I don't do that, that aren't good, or that I do that are, are, are not good, but I, I do so many things that are good. And they, they whitewash the deal, and they, they make it assume at least to themselves and others that they're right with God because God will accept them ultimately because they're basically a good person. And I assume for the Apostle Paul that he might have thought something similar about himself. Look, God, look at what I'm doing. Look at how I'm serving you. Look at how I'm following your law. Look at all of these things that I'm doing in my life to pursue you, Yahweh. And in a moment in time, as he's going on that Damascus road to bring more judgment against Christians who are a part of the way, the way, the truth, and the life, and Jesus meets him there. And Paul realizes, I am a sinner, and I am in need of gracious forgiveness. And I wasn't right with God. And in a moment of time, I realized I was actually the enemy of God. And as the enemy of God, I'm desperately in need of peace. And whose initiative was it that brought Paul to that realization? Well, we're going to find that out in verses 3 to 14 as we get there. But God was the one taking the initiative. And he showed Paul, Saul, that he, God, is the one who initiates the great and glorious salvation that we enjoy. That's grace. That's grace. And that's why Paul starts out his epistles. He does it in several of them. He speaks of grace, and he speaks of grace throughout. And we're going to see that in the book of Ephesians tonight. And he even ends the very last verse that we'll see tonight with grace and peace. It dominates his thinking, this grace of God, this peace of God. It overwhelms him. It causes him over and over again every day of his life to realize that he did absolutely nothing to bring the grace of God into his life. 
In fact, as the old Puritans used to say, the only thing we bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Yes, it's true. And that's Paul. That's his life. This is the writer of the book of Ephesians. If you want to see a couple of places, even outside the book of Ephesians, where Paul is exalting the grace of God in his life, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'll show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul wants everyone to know everywhere he goes about the grace of God, the exalted grace of God, the superabounding grace of God, the immeasurable grace of God. And he says it here in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8. After Jesus had appeared in his resurrection body to the twelve, the disciples, the apostles, Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And when did he appear to Paul? We saw it last time, didn't we? He appeared to him on that Damascus road. He appeared to him in that experience, for he says, I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now don't assume that Paul is just trying to lay it on thick to the Corinthians. Don't assume that he's saying these things because, oh shucks, I'm just trying to be humble. He meant every word of this. And do you know why we know that to be the case? Because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and nothing of, wit, of that which he writes could be written unless the Holy Spirit himself also testifies to the truth of these things. And when he says this, he says, I'm unworthy because I persecuted the church of God. You remember when we read in Acts chapter 26, the third time that he gives his testimony in the book of Acts, and he says, I was actually bent upon the idea of trying to force Christians to blaspheme God. Isn't that amazing? The motive of his life is to try to get the Christians to see how wrong they were, and if he has to stoop to the level of trying to get them to blaspheme God because he thinks they're so wrong, he would get them to do it? Does that not remind you, at least to some degree, with those religious zealots of our day who think they're doing God's service by killing people to avenge Allah? So true. And then notice what he says here in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15. But by the what? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Almost everywhere you turn, when Paul begins to speak about his own life, his own testimony, his own salvation, this word reappears time and time and time again. The grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. How many times do you talk to a Christian who's been walking with the Lord for a long, long time and you say, how are you doing? And what might they say? By, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's Paul. He was the one who started this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He was saying that all that God was doing in his life was because of God's gracious, sovereign choice. And it was also God's sovereign choice to be an apostle. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to show you this. I know I'm supposed to be moving on to verse 2, but I can't resist. He says 
in verse 1 of Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the what? By the will of God. That's not a throwaway phrase. He's very intentional about talking this kind of language regarding the will of God. I am an apostle, just like he says in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm an apostle. I shouldn't be. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. I'm I'm one as though untimely born. I'm the 13th. The other 12 are worthy, he thinks. But I am not because... I was one who persecuted the church, and yet God, by His grace, calls me to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And that phrase, by the will of God, it's repeated even three times in verses 3 to 11. Look at it, verse 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. The purpose of His will. And then He says in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. And then verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So four times in the front part of this first chapter, Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Your salvation is according to the will of God. We're predestined according to the purpose and will of God. And he will manifest an inheritance according to the purpose of and counsel of his will. Paul knew inherently that those other apostles before him weren't really worthy. And he knew he was especially unworthy. And he knew that if he was an apostle, if he knew that he was a part of that apostolic band, it was strictly and only and specifically because it was God's expressed will for it to be so. In fact, look at Galatians chapter 1. In a sense, he gives his testimony again. Uh, the defense of his apostleship. And he says in Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's not through a man. A man didn't confer this on me. Now, I know that even on our own day, there are men who are ordained to gospel ministry. I was ordained to the gospel ministry by men who laid their hands upon me 25 years ago, 1990, December of 1990. God conferred by the laying on of hands of the elders upon my life an ordination to the gospel ministry. And it was a sweet thing. It was a wonderful thing. It was a confirming thing. And it is something that ought to happen. But that's not the totality of it by far. The only reason that men lay their hands on you, the elders of a local church, and they confer confer upon you the sense of your calling to ministry is that they're simply doing as a symbolic act by the laying on of those hands what they believe God has already done. 
what God has already done. And Paul is saying to them here, there wasn't just a a mere symbolic laying on of hands of me. In fact, no man did that initially. It was done by Jesus Christ as an act of his revelatory will on the Damascus road, and he conferred upon me this fact. You are now going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Notice what he says further down in verses 15 and 16 of Galatians 1. Paul goes on to say there, He, speaking of God, who had set me apart when? Before I was born. Now Paul understands the the full-orbed nature of his apostolic ministry. He says, when you get right down to it, According to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14 and Galatians chapter 1 verses 15 and 16, I was actually set apart for gospel ministry and my own salvation before the world began and before even I came into existence as a human being. Now that's the exaltation of sovereignty. That's the exaltation of sovereign grace. That's Paul. God had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His what? By His grace. By His grace. Paul cannot rest the sentences of the New Testament that he wrote unless he slips in at an ever-ready opportunity. The grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God. And he was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul was called by God through the grace of God while still in his mother's womb, and his calling was to be God's grace, preaching, peace, proclaiming light to the Gentiles. That was his calling. Now, I don't have uh, the kind of calling that he does as an apostle, but I remember very, very well standing on a hotel balcony shortly after the first year of my conversion. And I remember specifically taking a spring break opportunity to go to Daytona Beach, Florida and witness to college students on the beach. And I was a college student myself. And I remember unmistakably standing on that balcony and I looked out at what appeared to me, and it probably was, without embellishment, tens of thousands of college students on their spring break walking along the beach at Daytona Beach, Florida. And I had the overwhelming sense that they were like sheep without a shepherd and that they needed the gospel. What they needed was from God, grace and peace. And that very scene in my mind has followed me all the days of my life because His grace toward me has humbled me to the place where I can identify with the the Apostle Paul. I can identify with what he's saying about himself and his calling and his ministry and the compulsion. He even said to the Corinthians, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Damn me, consign me to judgment unless I am a preacher of the gospel of God based upon the grace of God. Now with that in mind, that's the writer, Paul. And it took me a sermon and a half to get there. Now let's look at the recipients, the recipients. Verse 1b, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
you say, well, how could Paul say this to these Ephesians? Uh, Was he around them much? I mean, he was a missionary. He was planting churches. He was preaching all over the place. He was planting churches. Well, according to Acts chapter 19, verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul labored in ministry to the Ephesians for two and a half years. Two and a half years. And he likely was there ministering at other times as well. And Timothy, his protege in the faith, was later a pastor, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul knew these people. He knew them. And so he doesn't call them saints because they were in some special class of being very devout people, uh, sort of like the Roman Catholic Church speaks of saints. Uh, Their designation of sainthood being conveyed upon certain persons, like the Roman Catholic Church does, is not a biblical concept. Uh, There's not this class Christianity where you have uh, the sort of normal people who struggle with life, they struggle with their sin even though they're Christians, and then you have this uh, super class of Christians who who seem not to struggle like you and I do, and because of that uh, they seem to to live on this different plane spiritually, and so we call them the true saints. Uh, We're we're just the -the run-of-the-mill Christians, but they're the real saints. Not so. Not so. You'll find in a couple different places Paul will say as he's opening a letter to those to whom he writes, he'll say, to the saints, like he does the Corinthians. And uh, if you ask me, did they always look like saints? Not on your life. Not on your life. But they were saints. So he's just simply saying here, the word saint, meaning someone who's set apart by God, and that's what all true believers are, set apart by God unto the Lord to do the work of the ministry. That's it. That's all a saint is. Someone who's set apart. Someone who's doing the work of the Lord, doing ministry for God. And notice what he also says here. He goes on to describe the Ephesians as faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ Jesus. And again, this isn't describing some super category or or ultra class of Christians who are uh, the most faithful and the rest of us are uh, just struggling at some low ebb of life or ministry. Uh, We're not the faithful. They're the faithful. Uh, We're the hoi polloi. Uh, They're the super Christians. Not so. You know, even in Galatians 6.1 when it says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one who's fallen into sin. You who are spiritual, you know who who those are who are spiritual? Those who are Christians. Because if you're a Christian, you're spiritual. If you're spiritual, you're a Christian. He's simply using that as a synonymous term. And he's saying, look, if you are a Christian, if you're someone who's in Christ, and he's going to be talking about that, that's a pregnant phrase by Paul. If you're in Christ, then you're a saint. If you walk with Christ, if you're a genuine believer, if you're a bona fide Christian, someone who walks with Christ, someone who's redeemed by Christ, then you are faithful in Christ Jesus. And some of you say, well, I don't sometimes feel as though I'm faithful. Well, that's a, that's a normal thought of the Christian life. Of course it's normal. Because there are days we wake up and we say, I don't feel like a saint and I don't think I'm doing anything faithful. But you are. You are. If you know Christ, God's looking not at the totality of your life. He's looking at the direction of your life. Are you growing in righteousness? Are you growing in holiness? However halting that may be. Yes, it may be three steps forward and two steps backward at times. But you're still a saint. You're still faithful to God. And you know why? Because God's the one who makes you a saint. God's the one who makes you faithful. 
God's the one who works in your life, and He's on a relentless quest to make you conform to the image of His Son. And when He does, you're in that category. You're a saint. You're one of the faithful ones. And that's really what the Ephesians were. These are one of those groups of Christians in a local church setting in Ephesus who are saints and faithful to God, faithful in Christ Jesus. Those are the recipients, and they are saints and faithful. Thirdly and finally tonight, not just the writer, Paul, not just the recipients, the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, Ephesians, but thirdly, the request. Look at verse 2, the request. Here it is, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. And you say, honestly, how much can you get out of that verse? Come on. You know, I spent all week trying to wring out everything from the book of Ephesians that I could possibly think of regarding the concepts of grace and peace. Now, I introduced them to you last time, and I told you that grace, the Greek word charis, grace, is that idea of the unmerited favor of God, right? The grace of God. Remember I said if you're uh, growing up in the church and you might have seen or heard about as a little child that, that acronym, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the, the concept that we know we're sinners. We know we're deserving of hell. We're like Paul. I, I persecuted Christians. I, I hated Christians. I loved myself. I loved who I was. I, I loved everything about me, and then I realized that I was so very unlovable. I realized that I deserved not the grace of God, but hell, but instead of hell, I was given Christ, and I was given His grace because of what He did on the cross. And I also realized that instead of receiving peace from God, what I ought to receive is, is the, the very thing that I deserve, and that is hostility from God because I was at war with God, because I was a friend of the world, and a person who is a friend of the world is hostile to God. He's an enemy of God. But instead of being that enemy, I was actually given grace and peace, the kind of peace where there is an absence of hostility, and I could not generate that on my own. I could not bring that to fruition. It had to come from God by His initiative toward me. That's, that's charis and that's peace. And so I did a little study on charis and the Greek word for peace, arene, in the book of Ephesians. And here's what I found. You ready? Let's go through the book of Ephesians and let's look at grace and peace to close out our time tonight. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. This is amazing. Twelve times in the book of Ephesians, God's grace is seen. God's grace is mentioned by Paul. He exalts the grace of God. And, and this is the first one. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first one. Now there are 11 others. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6 says this. Ephesians 1 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. Isn't that a song we sing? Praise His glorious grace. I love the fact that Paul puts adjectival importance on the concept of grace. Glorious grace, he says. 
to the praise of His glorious grace. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The riches of His grace. He can't stop with the idea that he's going to praise God for the gloriousness of grace. He has to go on in the very next verse to talk about the riches of God's grace. Is that what you believe? Is that how you experience the concept of grace? You say, well, I did it my salvation. Well, what about your normal Christian life? Do you... Do you say to yourself, look, I I know that at my salvation, the grace of God was never more sweet to me. It was never more powerful to me. But I, I must admit, there are times when I hit the doldrums that I don't think about grace like that. I think that's, that's really what made Paul, Paul, if you want to say it that way, because Paul was constantly thinking, meditating, musing upon the grace of God. It never got old to him. Never got old to him. Why? Because if you're a guy who sits in your chair and you think about what God did for you when you were going to kill Christians and he says, instead, I'm going to give you my grace instead of my law. I'm going to give you heaven instead of hell. I'm going to give you blessing instead of cursing. There's a man who is enraptured by grace, and that's the kind of man who, when he pins this New Testament epistle, he exalts the gloriousness of grace. He exalts the riches of God's grace. And then look at chapter 2, verse 5. Oh, this is so marvelous. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God the subject of verse 4, God made us alive together with Christ. And then notice this phrase, by grace you have been saved. He's already said it. He's already said it in verse 6 of chapter 1. Why does he need to say it again? He said it in verse 7 of chapter 1. Why does he need to say it again? I mean, you think I repeat myself as the preacher? Paul says, I just can't get enough of grace. By grace you have been saved. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. So it's not just the glorious praise of grace. It's not just the riches of grace. It's not just being saved by grace. But it's now the immeasurable riches of His grace. No wonder Paul was a thankful man. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul, you've already said it. You've already told us that. Why repeat yourself? Because it's so easy for us even as Christians to lose sight of the grace of God. No sooner do your words come out of your mouth, then we have a tendency to forget the grace of God. No sooner do your eyes lift off the pages of Holy Scripture and what you read about grace than you begin thinking about the problems of my life and why I don't deserve them. He says, for grace 
you have been saved through faith. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Assuming, Paul says, speaking to the Gentiles, that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, he's even talking about grace as a stewardship. What is a stewardship? This uh, particular word, stewardship, it's actually uh, a word that has overtones even all the way back to the person of Joseph in Genesis 39 and following. And it's the idea that, that Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his house, everything except Potiphar's wife. And he says, you're going to be in charge of those things. This, this word actually comes from the word from which we derive the English word economy. Economy. He's a house steward. And Paul borrows that language and says, I'm actually, because God has called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles, I have a house stewardship. I have a responsibility. I'm to be a steward of something. And it's not just the steward of his gifts, and it's not just the stewardship of other things that he might say, I know I'm responsible for that. I know I'm supposed to do that. I know that's my role. I know that's my responsibility. Notice what he says. I have been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and I assume you've heard about my stewardship of what? God's grace. Wow! Do you mean to tell me, Paul, that you actually have a stewardship that includes how you handle the grace of God in your life and how you are used by God as an instrument to dispense that grace to others? Now, I don't know about you, but what that does to me is it sends shivers down my spine because I've got a stewardship. I've got a responsibility. You say, well, I'm not an apostle. Well, you are with a little a. You might not be an apostle with a big A, but you're sent with a message, and that message is how you live your life and how you communicate the gospel to others. You're sent. God's sending you with a message. And He's calling it a stewardship of God's grace. How are you doing with your stewardship of God's grace? How are you, how are you doing in the responsibility of being an instrument by God to dispense the grace of God? That's what he's saying. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Again, amazing. Now he's talking about grace as a gift. And he'll do that over and over and over again. It's all over the New Testament when Paul speaks. God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. It's a gift, it's a gift, it's a gift. Chapter 3, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Given grace. Immeasurable riches of grace. The praise of His glorious grace. We're saved by grace through faith. And now I have been given grace. It's a gift to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He knows he doesn't deserve it. He knows it's a gift. He knows it's something he's been given. And look at chapter 4, verse 29. Did you know that you have a responsibility horizontally between yourself and other believers? 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, Ephesians 4.29, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There's that stewardship again, even from believer to believer. And then look at chapter 6, verse 24. The very last verse. You know, he starts Ephesians 1.1 talking about grace. Grace be with you. Grace to you. Verse 24 of Ephesians 6. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. You say, well, that's just how they ended letters. You know, it would be like, uh, dear so-and-so, and then sincerely, Paul. That's just the way you did it. It's obligatory. No. With what I've shown you, do you think grace was obligatory to Paul? Do you think he just signed off the end of his letter by saying, um, grace to you, Paul. No, he was enraptured with grace. He was exalting the grace of God. He wanted to start it and he wanted to end it. These are perfect bookends of grace, the grace of God from God to Paul. And not to be outdone, peace comes along and says, wait, wait a minute. I want to get in on the act. I mean, grace is exalted. I want peace to be exalted. And so you have irene, the word for peace. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. This peace of God. For, talking about Christ, for He Himself is our peace. In what sense? Who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man, Jew and Gentile, in place of the two, so making what? Peace. Look at verse 17. And He came and preached peace. Christ preached peace to you who were far off. That's the Gentiles. And He preached peace to those who were near. Those are the Jews. Amazing. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Now He gets real practical and He says, I want to encourage you, to command you, to exhort you, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? Peace. Peace. Peace in the fellowship. Peace with God. Absence of hostility. Peace in the fellowship. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. The armor of God. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's what the gospel is. It doesn't create infighting. It doesn't create hostility. The gospel brings peace. And then chapter 6, verse 23. Peace says, not to be outdone by Paul in verse 24 about grace. He says, verse 23 of chapter 6, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God the peace of God. Do you have that peace? Do you have that grace? Oh, I trust that you do. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray together. Father, there is... 
so many more things to say about grace and peace, but we are desirous of moving on in Paul's letter to the Ephesians to actually see what grace and peace do, how they operate in a world of of hostility and in a world of pride where people think that they are deserving of grace and where they assume that they are the architects of peace. But they are not and we are not. And Paul has made it clear to us, even in the first two verses of this epistle, that if we are to know anything of the kind of well-being and regard from God, then we can't know peace except through the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done on the cross. And I pray for those who are here that if they are living now not in peace but in hostility, they're agitated, they have no rest, I pray that You would give them Your peace your wholeness, your shalom. And we know that it will only come because Jesus Christ grants peace. And may He take the initiative to grant peace in the hearts of those who have no peace tonight. For those who have peace, may they abound in the gloriousness of peace. The fact that I'm not the enemy of God anymore but I'm His friend. And Jesus is the friend of sinners. Lord, the grace of God, may it continue to show up in our lives and our thoughts so that when we're down, when we're discouraged, when we realize that we are nothing and that Christ is everything, then we'll know about His grace. Thank You for this unmerited regard this favor and may we exalt the grace of God and if you're in need of that grace tonight you can speak to me or someone who's regularly a part of Thousand Oaks Bible Church and we'll tell you what the grace of God has done in our lives and we'll tell you how the grace of God can be operative in your life through the cross of Christ oh father thank you for our study tonight and may we now embark upon verses 3 to 14, one long sentence in the Greek text that tells us about this great salvation marked by grace and peace. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.